Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is noon uh, on uh, January the 26th. We are limping towards the end of January. The last week has been spectacular in many ways. It was only a week ago that President Joe Biden gave his inaugural address to the American people calling, I think, in some ways to a return to being real Americans, whatever that means, real Americans who can share and sympathize and tolerate each other. Uh, I'm a supporter of Biden, but I think perhaps he simplifies uh, the American story, suggesting that we can go back to something that perhaps never really existed. The job of good journalists and writers, of course, is to tell the truth about the past, to uncover things that people don't necessarily want to hear, that makes us very uncomfortable. Uh, my guest on the show today, I think, is one of those kinds of writers and journalists. Back in 2015, she wrote a wonderful piece for the New York Times, a story about a, a boy who was given up for adoption and was found a half a century later. Uh, the, the story began on a a rainy spring evening last year, Margaret Earl Katz noticed a voicemail from an unfamiliar area code and dismissed it as a message from a telemarketer. A day later, though, she listened and listened and listened. It was the voice of a, a long lost son and the piece is by uh, Gabrielle Glazer. She's my guest on the show today and she's the author of a really wonderful new book, American Baby, a book that's already being acclaimed um, Gabrielle, are you a truth teller? Is that your business, particularly in this book of American Baby? Yes, that's absolutely what motivated me to write it and to examine the very uncomfortable truths, as you said, about our nation's history and its predatory adoption system that uh, reigned, very, very um, difficult reign between roughly 1946 to the early 1970s. It's funny, Gabriel, that um, those are the years that many people, I'm not saying Joe Biden, but some people on both the left and the right suggest were the glory years of America, where we could all agree on everything, the, the, the years of the American family, of the great society. But your book, American Baby, tells a quite different story. Tell me this story. It's interesting that you should say that because that's what the driver was for the, that's what the driver was behind the adoption system. So in 1961, Margaret Earl Katz, she was Margaret Earl, she was a 16 year old girl um, who got pregnant by her high school boyfriend, very, very, uh, they were very, very much in love. And she was forced by her family, by her religious community, by society itself as an unwed mother to surrender her son into the adoption system. She tried everything she could to keep him. She and George Katz married, they eloped as teenagers. They 
tried to uh, um, demonstrate their fitness as parents to social workers in New York City, all to no avail. And their son, uh, who went on to be adopted by a loving, loving couple um, and renamed him David Rosenberg, uh, would be separated from them for 52 years from his birth in 1961, December 1961, until he and Margaret ultimately reunited very briefly in 2014. Tell me a little bit more about this teenage couple who, 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 who bore a number of children. The first one who was adopted, all, all the others were, so to say, so to speak, kept. What were they like? Um, that's a photograph of Margaret the day that she was leaving to go to the maternity home in Staten Island, where her family had sent her to hide out her pregnancy, the rest of her pregnancy in secret. It happened to be a very, very warm day and she's wearing a wool coat to try to disguise her belly. Um, the two of them, Margaret was the daughter of refugees from Nazi Europe and George was the daughter of two, was the son of two Holocaust survivors who had come from Vienna. Their parents were were both sets of parents were really against the union, particularly the Katzes. They had been attorneys, as I said, and had greater means than the Earl family, and did everything they could to try to keep the couple apart, and certainly did everything they could to try to um, make sure that. The, the, the stigma of Margaret's unwed pregnancy was hidden from view forever. Here we have, uh, Gabrielle, a picture of the baby, cute baby. I did a, a Google search for American baby before this and came up with all sorts of wonderful looking yeah. babies, very, very uh, post-racial, if you like, in American history. What is it about babies that brings out both the best and the worst of America and perhaps humans generally? I think that's, first of all, that's a wonderful question. I think it just goes to the very heart of who we are as, as human beings. It touches on our fertility. It touches on our sexuality. It touches on who our legacy will be in the world. And it is an incredible, babies are, everybody loves, well, not everybody loves babies, but, um, you know, babies are, are. Have you got any, by the way? Do you have children? I do. I, I, am, I am the mother of three adult daughters. Wow. Yep. So you went through it three times, all, all, all natural babies, no, no adoptees? No adoptees. And yes, I was very, very fortunate to be able to have those children. It's amazing that we, you know, what, what, what we take for granted. I was very, I was lucky enough to have those children and, and to be able to bring them home. In 1961, New York, premarital sex was actually a crime that you could be prosecuted for. And Margaret, as I said, was was uh, did everything she could in her power. She was determined to keep her baby. But um, finally, when threatened by with social worker by social workers with um, the thought of reformatory school or juvenile, you know, hall, she, you know, was coerced into sur signing surrender papers, surrender papers for her son. It's funny, uh, I actually came across your book originally, you did an interview with the New York Times book review and, and you were uh, featured on the same show as Kenneth Rosen, who has a new book out called Troubled, who's also been on the show. And this sort of aggressive treatment on behalf of a bureaucratic state, not only covered the treatment, I guess, of, um, of, of, of 
of, of teenagers, uh, pregnant teenagers, especially girls, but also troubled youth. Um, was there something authoritarian about this culture that we, we don't really acknowledge this supposedly pro-family, pro-baby culture of the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s? Absolutely. First of all, um, part of what led to this huge, there was a huge rise in unwed pregnancies in the years after the war and before Roe v. Wade. The sexual revolution was simmering. Birth control was non-existent even for married families in many states. Abortion, of course, was illegal before Roe v. Wade, and there was no such thing as sex education. And yet, the suburban family was the 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 be all and end all of American culture at that time. And the impetus, the desire, the demand from that that couples get married and procreate was enormous. And if you couldn't have a baby, if you were infertile, then that was a shame. And actually, in some cases, it made you suspect. It made you um, somehow un-American. And there were uh, rumors among, about people who, who had been uh, unable to conceive that they were actually secret reds. And I ran across some, some documentation of that in some um, uh, infertility uh, peer-reviewed medical journals. So this notion of, of, of having a, a this, this nuclear family, the focus on that was just, if you couldn't achieve it, the only way to do it was to turn to the children of unwed mothers. And nobody looked behind the curtain about how that was being achieved. These girls were forced into maternity homes, much like Margaret. There were 44 of them nationwide. Um, there were massive adoption agencies that went from state to state. And the demand was outstripping the supply for them in the late through from the late 40s all the way through the late 1960s yeah i um I, I sort of troubled in many ways not by the book itself but by the images because this image for example uh gabrielle of, of a supposedly happy family as you say was the picture of the boy with his adopted parents and now looking at that it looks very different does it seem different to you that kind of photo different how different in the sense that you know that this is a narrative of loss and that your book is about a little boy who never knew about his mother until the last few months of his life and then had the opportunity to reunite. I wonder how the adopted parents have responded to your narrative. Well, many of them feel, so far I've heard from quite a few, and many of them feel somewhat threatened. There are many people feel angry and have written a, a spate of angry emails. Um, I uncover in the book an enormous number of really untoward behaviors, untoward, um, untoward acts that adoption agencies did in the name of creating new families. There were experiments that were covered by, that were funded by the US government, allegedly to um, measure the intelligence of a newborn baby and be able to match that child with the uh, prospective parents. Basis of intelligence that they alleged, you know, that they measured at, at, on a 10 minute old baby. I'll get to that in a second. And I think it's really uncomfortable for people to sort of 
come to terms with these really difficult truths that were being perpetrated behind the scenes. That looks like a sweet little boy and by all accounts, by all means, he was truly loved by his adopted parents. They were Holocaust survivors and they doted on him. They loved him, they gave him every advantage and he loved them too. But the narrative that the adoption agency had perpetrated was that he was unwanted, that he was an inconvenience mother and his birth father, and the lies that were mutual, were quite, uh, they were quite remarkable. They actually, adoption agencies typically would paint a, 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 a birth mother as a young college girl who was a concert pianist or had a raft of talents. Maybe she was on her way to medical school, when in fact, she was a high school girl who got pregnant by her high school boyfriend on prom night. Here's the tale that chosen by his adoptive parent. I shouldn't say any time, but many times when an adoptee is um, told that he was the chosen one by his by his parents, adoptive parents, he thinks, well, what was wrong with me? Why why didn't my birth parents choose me? Tell me a little bit about um, David himself. Here we have a picture of David Rosenberg with his wife. Uh, when he was married, he's no longer alive. He clearly was a remarkable man. He was the source of, I mean, he's, he's, he's the core of the narrative, and he was the guy you first came across who, 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 who gave you the story. How did you meet David? I met David. I was a newspaper reporter in Portland, Oregon in 2007, and he was getting a kidney donation from a friend. And I met him at a dialysis center, which is a very unusual place to um, meet someone for the first time, especially when you're going to interview them, and immediately put me at ease and said he hoped that the story would go viral in 2007. Things were just beginning to sort of um, be, you know, promoted online, YouTube, and I don't, I don't know, Facebook was a thing yet, but stories were, were getting traction beyond their original audience. And he hoped, he told me, that somewhere out there in cyberspace, those were the words he used, that his birth mother would see the article and recognize him as her son. And that didn't happen. Um, the story did go viral and many people donated kidneys as a result of having seen that story. But ultimately a DNA test linked him to his mother and he found her in 2014, um, as you read, initially from the, you know, at the beginning of the, of the piece, um, he, he found her through a DNA test and they reunited three months before he died of some of the very illnesses that she had spent her entire life trying to warn him against. And the adoption agency had never passed on those messages. There's a particular poignancy about this. Here we have um, a photo of David with his mother taken in, in, in Portland, Oregon. What was there? meeting when it happened, what was it like? For David, I know that he was able to reverse the narrative that he had been told his entire life. That, and that, that was the one I mentioned earlier, that he had been unwanted, that somehow he'd gotten in, a, in the way of a better life of his mother, you know, of, of, of somehow that he'd been an impediment and an inconvenience. And for him to really 
be able to absorb and accept that he was loved, he was conceived in love, he was wanted, and that his mother had had searched for him and wondered and prayed for his well-being every day of her life, completely reversed that that narrative of being unwanted. And it gave him, you know, forgive me, I, I the word that comes to mind is, is closure. That's the word that I was, um, you know, that 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 his family described his having, and he felt at peace finally to know that his his parents had wanted him very much. There's a lot of subtexts to your book or sub stories. One of them is about data and new technologies and businesses that allow you to essentially discover yourself. Uh, I, I think that David did this. Uh, um, this this particular DNA test for $99 to reveal who he was. Um, what did you learn about that, about, the, about whether people should or shouldn't take these DNA tests, particularly if they're adopted? Oh, I think that's a very, very personal decision for adoptees in many states where um, the records to their adoptions, their original birth certificates remain closed, including California. For some people, that's the only po possible route to finding any, any indication of their, of their origins, their ethnic origins. Maybe and if they're lucky, they can link with the, a, a half sibling or a distant cousin who may be able to help them reveal more about their origins. But that is very, very dependent on your other relatives sending their saliva off to a gigantic tech company and um, a for-profit company. A for-profit. Mm -hmm. the, the sort of the, the narrative of capitalism was also bound up in in your story. The idea of making profit over people's identities and particularly. I don't know, making or ruining their life. There's so much to it. And um, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a few months ago, the author of Surveillance Capitalism, uh, who's perhaps Silicon Valley's most lucid and persuasive critic. Uh, the founders of 23andMe, the, the female founder, is um, I think the ex-wife or mm -hmm. the current wife of one of the Google co-founders. So she's a a billionaire or a multi-billionaire. So there's something slightly distasteful about all this. Let's go back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, Gabrielle. We had Robert Kolker on the show yeah. a couple of months ago. His masterpiece, Hidden Valley Road, I think needs mm. to be read with yours. It's a very different kind of book, but like yours, it's telling the truth of an America or an American family that seemed idyllic from the outside and deeply troubled from the inside. What did your book and the research about it tell you about the history of mental illness in America? Did it reveal anything or is that another subject entirely? No, it, it, uh, first of all, women who uh, became pregnant out of wedlock were immediately uh, pathologized as being at the very least neurotic. Oftentimes their families had them uh, committed to psychiatric institutions and Understand and some women who who had babies were were you know many women who had babies were patients in psychiatric hospitals and were actually ill themselves and again just going back to some of the lies that the adoption agencies uh, told about the the origins of of um, the babies they were proffering oftentimes uh, uh, they would well they never 
in my experience, any nothing that I turned up indicated that they they um, promoted these children. Oh, by the way, this is a woman who is uh, the, this child's birth mother has been identified as having schizophrenia. But you know, no, you know, don't worry. Instead, they you know they made up the same lies as I've mentioned before about you know college students and 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 nursing students, and they were using they were tracking those children over time, the children of, of women who had been um, diagnosed with mental illness. They tracked them because they believed that the, the you know, the, the influence of nurture over nature w- would be triumphant. This was a new era and science was, was going to, to, to triumph over, over everything. And if we just put these babies with the right parents, then they won't develop mental illness. Well, it's really creepy. I mean, your book is, is, the book itself is not creepy, but it, but, but the narrative that you expose, I looked up some of these agencies that you write about in the book, and either they're out of business, I hope some of the people were punished. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's clearly, what, what do we do to fix this? Uh, uh, leaving aside blockchain, Gabrielle, do we just make these kind of unaccountable agencies? Do we put them out of business? Do we have to change the law to make this stuff more accountable? For first, we have to open the laws in every state in which adoptees do not have access to their original birth certificates. Secondly, we need to have um, oversight over what it is these agencies, and believe me, they exist throughout the southern United States. Texas is full of gigantic, powerful adoption agencies that have ties to celebrities, they have ties to powerful politicians, and the actions of many of those adoption agencies are little different from what I uncovered about the agencies that were existent in the 1950s and 60s. What can people do if people are really troubled by this, even if they, they haven't personally been involved in, in adopting children? Can they? Uh, I know you, you feel very strongly that, um, that, uh, um, adoptees, uh, this isn't from you, this is from a Mother Jones piece, mm-hmm. that, uh, American adoptees should be able to access their birth certificates and that they should be told, quote unquote, the truth about this, that we shouldn't glamorize it. Of course, there are lots of films, in a sense, glamorizing this. There's Philomena, which everyone's probably seen, that the story of the three boys, the identical twins, who are uh, three identical strangers. I'm not sure if Hollywood does a disservice to this, but we need to take it a little bit more seriously, don't we, Gabrielle? Oh, absolutely. And adoption in mainstream culture and pop culture in particular, particularly in, in movies, is glamorized, as you said, and the narrative um, is is one of uh, um, looking at this institution as, as with utter benevolence and the it's it's the best case scenario for everyone. The the most recent movie that I can think of that I saw that was absolutely outrageous. It was it was called Instant Family, um, with Mark Wahlberg and uh, Rose Byrne, I believe, and they adopt some siblings. I believe three siblings, and it's as if the origins of the children should just be washed away, and you should be really happy and feel really lucky to be in this house. Look at all these wonderful Christmas presents that we're delivering for you on Christmas morning. And what 
you know, what's wrong with you? That you don't feel lucky, that you don't feel grateful. Look at what we're doing for you. And I think we need to be very, very upfront about the fact that adoption begins with loss and a loss of international adoptees, a loss of their culture, a loss of their kin, a loss of people. What would you suggest for international adoptees from East Asia, for example, if it's much harder to get one's records? I know you have a section about this at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and that, you know, many of those, those young women um, from China, for example, they're just coming of age. The, 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 the push to adopt within China began, in the, I believe, in the mid-1990s and sort of extended through the early 2000s for about 10, 10 or 15 years. And those girls are now in, they're not girls, they're young women, and they're um, in their early 20s. They're starting to ask questions about their origins. And it is exceedingly difficult, as you said, to try to go back and trace who they are. So don't keep, and, and you wrote a, an excellent piece for the Times about this a couple of years ago, don't keep adopted people in the dark. And finally, um, Gabrielle, I, I think you're also an, an advocate for adoptee rights. Here we have a, a screenshot of the American Adoption Congress. I'm not sure how legitimate that particular one is, but I know you've written and spoken quite a lot about adoptees articulating uh, their interests and rights collectively. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely fair. I started writing this book out of curiosity and sorrow and uh, wondering what had happened that, that created this separation between my friend and his birth mother. And I ended it with utter outrage at what our country had had um, had perpetrated in the name of family togetherness and in the name of of of, of the American family, in the name of of patriotism in some regards, and uh, I I did cross the line between well I shouldn't say cross the line but I definitely edged more over into the to the to the notion of of advocacy because I do absolutely 100% believe that adoptees are that it is a human and civil right to know your origins and to be able, be able to access the documents that tell you who you are to be able to know who your kin is to be able to know who, what your family story is, what your origin story is. And adoption is based on stolen origin stories. That's, the, that's, that's closed secret adoption in any, in any regard is, is based on, you know, stolen origin stories. Well, your book, American Baby, A Mother, A Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption is brutally honest. You did cross the line, which I think is a good thing. We don't want you not to tell the truth. This is a book about lies, exposing lies. So I think you did a wonderful job. It's a must read for anyone who cares about this subject. Indeed, anyone who cares about the history of the American family in the post-war age. Um, I know you're stuck in New Jersey. Lovely place, uh, Gabrielle, uh, in these strange times, stuck inside. I'm in Berkeley. I think it's a bit warmer out here. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book? I have just finished, because it's COVID, and I have a bit 
of a short attention span. I've just finished this extraordinary uh, collection of short stories by Nicole Krauss, To Be a Man. I ate it up. Um, I have quite a bit of adoption literature, which I've been reading. This is a wonderful graphic novel by, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce her name correctly. She's Swedish. She's a, a Korean adoptee from Sweden. Her name is Lisa. It looks like Vul Rim. It's, it's breathtakingly beautiful. Um, it talks about her voyage of uh, learning more about Korea and her origins. And lastly, um, I'm really interested in the life of uh, the great British psychiatrist John, and pediatrician John Bowlby, who in the years after the Second World War began studying the extraordinary links between um, childhood development and, and motherhood and the importance of a child having a very, very um, strong relationship with, a, with a, doesn't have to be a mother, but one single person who can uh, give the child, as he calls it, a secure base. He had one of the first bestsellers in um, the post-war era. It was called um, uh, mental health and um, mater maternal ties and mental health. And it was published by the World Health Organization and it um, uh, sold 400,000 copies between uh, in, the, in the immediate years after, uh, in the early 1950s. Gabrielle Glazer, the author of American Babe. It's real honor to have you on the show. I realized I missed asking you perhaps the most important question. Could you have written this book if you'd been a man? Maybe we'll save that question for another show. But I want to thank you for, 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 for a wonderful book and a wonderful story and being brave enough, perhaps crazy enough to tell the truth about something which we're all incredibly uncomfortable with. I want to wish you a very happy new year and a healthy new year and i hope to see you again on the show in the not too distant future thank you so much thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it thanks so much you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.